Effectively wild Effectively wild Effectively wild Hello and welcome to episode 2111 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. And we are a trio. We are joined by Michael Mountain, who has been with us a few times before over the years. He is a Patreon supporter. He is a listener. He is an occasional contributor. Hello, Michael. Hi, thanks for having me back again. Happy to have you back. We're sort of doing this episode backwards. We are boldly exploring new orders in which to do stat blasts and (laughs) interviews. So... Later on this episode, Meg and I will be talking to Brian Moritz, who is a professor at St. Bonaventure in sports journalism and digital journalism, the author of Sports Media Guy, a sports journalism and sports media substack. He wrote a piece with the provocative title, A Major Sports Betting Journalism Scandal is Coming. And so we're going to talk to him about that, why this risk exists, why it's worrisome, what can be done about it, whether anyone will think of the children, which might not sound like the lightest topic, but we had some fun with it. We had a nice lively conversation about the existential threats facing our industry. Mm-hmm. But we want to start with something a little more baseball-y. And Michael, you are here partly to deliver a stat blast, a rare episode opening stat blast, but also to propose an effectively wild community meetup of sorts, a group activity, a hands across America, not for a good cause, unless the cause is just meeting up at baseball stadiums and watching baseball games, which is actually a pretty good cause. Can you tell us about your plan, your proposal for effectively wild ballpark meetups during the 2024 season and what information you're hoping to receive from our listeners? Sure. I mean, I love your uh, commitment to experimenting with the form, even after 2,000 episodes, just trying to keep it fresh. As you mentioned, I'm a Patreon supporter, and the Patreon Discord is a wonderful place to be for anyone who's not currently contributing. It's a really great uh, baseball discussion group and also just general camaraderie. did not tell Michael to say that, although I do (laughs) endorse that sentiment. No SponCon here. Mm -mm. But one of the uh, Stat Blast channels, which I frequent, I shared a couple months ago an idea for potentially trying to organize a series of meetups across MLB stadiums during the 2024 season. This is a bit of a nod to the road trip that I took back in 2018 to try to actually physically visit a game at at all 30 parks in the shortest time span possible. Discussed on episode 1263. Yes, which was a delight. This is a slightly different puzzle to solve, I guess. Uh, you know, the the way that I think of a lot of these stat blasts and schedule finding and everything, they're all sort of puzzles and, and they're all sort of ways for me to to try to explore some new programming challenge or, or do something else with, uh, with coding that sparks my interest. And so for this one, the original idea was to try to find um, a route between stadiums that took, I didn't care how long it took, basically, in terms of time whether it took, you know, one month, two months, the entire season, et cetera, um, just to try to find the shortest travel distance. So to get the stadiums in as close to optimal a visiting order as possible without regard to how long the total trip would actually take. And that sort of evolved into an idea of what if that was used as the basis for figuring out a schedule to have a series of listener meetups uh, across the league through 
throughout the course of the season. Sounds fun to me. Yeah. We've had informal ones from time to time. People just meet up of their own accord, but having sort of a organized passing of the baton type experiment sounds fun. Yeah, and I, and I've gone to a few of the local ones here in the in the Baltimore DC area, which has been delightful and figured it might be like you said, uh, a good idea to try to organize something on a slightly larger scale. Now, when I say organize, um, <laughs> I want to be clear that that uh, this is not something that I'm looking to undertake as a solo effort. Um, and this is where the rest of the listener community comes in. We really need local organizers to help with contributing and planning and setting up, coordinating uh, ticket purchases, figuring out you know seating locations and 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 all of that good stuff for their local uh, regions. Since I am certainly not planning to attend all of these. So it, it, it really is a communal effort. And so what I've done is I've developed a uh, short Google survey, uh, which will be linked in the show notes, and we'll also drop it in the Facebook group and in the Patreon Discord for people to indicate their interest, uh, whether you'd like to organize a local meetup or just attend. Uh, filling out that survey is going to be very helpful to get a sense of how appealing an idea this is for the larger Effectively Wild community and make sure that we can figure out a, a good way to get it organized since we are only a couple months away here from opening day. So Yeah, sounds fun to me. So please fill out the survey. Um, there's a space for uh, contact info if you'd like to be an organizer or just uh, to share some comments or ideas. And uh, we look forward to having a really great turnout all across the league and uh, maybe sharing some photos or uh, or items that, that folks might want to bring and share and maybe uh, sign or send something to Ben and Meg. We'll see. We'll figure it out. Yeah, like an Olympic torch will be passed. I don't know. <laughs> maybe my old mic that I no longer use to record the podcast, but used to. That could be passed from hand-to-hand, ballpark-to-ballpark ceremonially. <laughs> yeah, that, that may be a little ambitious for our first year here, but uh, you know, if it goes well, who knows? Maybe it'll become a, an annual event. I would love to see how all 30 parks would interact with that from a security perspective, Ben. Like, <laughs> What is this? Are you bringing this in? Maybe that couldn't get past the metal detectors. It's probably also covered with my spittle. Anyway, <laughs> I think this is a, a nice thing to think about in the depths of winter, although I enjoy the depth of winter. Many people do not, and they probably like thinking about summer when it will be bright and there will be baseball again. So you've given them the chance to do that, and we'll be busting stat head stereotypes here, leaving our computers going out into the open air and the sun and associating with others, actually socializing. Maybe I'll show up if there's one in the area. So sounds like a good idea to me. We will put it on the show notes. So give Michael some feedback. And you have also brought a stat blast or maybe multiple stat blasts. And since we are now playing some listener covers of the stat blast song to introduce this segment, I believe you recorded one a few years ago, and so it would be quite appropriate for me to play the Michael Mountain cover of the Stat Blast mm -hmm. song to set up Michael Mountain Stat Blast. They'll take a data set sorted by something like ERA minus or OPS plus, and then they'll tease out some interesting tidbit, discuss it at length, and analyze it for us in amazing ways. Here's Today's Sad Blast. 
Well, do you want to start with your shortest one and maybe we'll work our way up? Sure. Yeah, I've got a couple here and, and I will often have these musings and just post them in the Stat Blast channel. And I know, Ben, you sometimes grab those to share. Um, these were a couple here where I felt like it was a little bit more confusing to actually type out the thoughts about them. So um, I can just sort of run through these kind of quickly here. The short one I'll say was inspired by or a follow-up to um, an old research topic from Sam Miller uh, in the early Effectively Wild days uh, related to Nick Marcakis and the lack of awards recognition, we'll say, that he right. received throughout most of his career. Obviously, that is no longer true at this time, given some of the uh, MVP votes that he got, uh, all-star appearance, etc., at the end of his Orioles tenure. Yes, spoiled by that 2018, his age 34 season, 18th place in the MVP race and hmm. also an all-star appearance. Yes, he was so close, but uh, we'll we'll have to settle for just remembering him fondly in our hearts here in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. But inspired by that research, I was refreshing it and also doing a little bit of breakdown analysis by franchise. So I looked for the baseball reference war leader for each franchise, a war accumulated for that team. Um, and I generated four four different lists, which are you know, sort of related, but but slightly different based on how strict I wanted to be with the awards recognition criteria. The most lenient was just to say they never uh, received a major award while they were playing for that team. And I considered major awards to be all-star appearances, uh, gold glove, silver slugger, MVP award, or rookie of the year. Okay. So did no awards for that team. I had a separate list, which was they never received an award in their entire career. A third list was uh, that they did not receive any award votes at any point during their tenure with the team. So this is MVP votes, essentially, uh, mm -hmm. or Rookie of the Year votes. Uh, and then the most strict criteria was that they no award votes in their entire career. So I generated each of those lists with those criteria and found the franchise war leader in each category. And it's kind of interesting how it breaks down. Most of the teams sort of are around the 15 to 20 war mark for each of those criteria. It starts out a little higher and gets down as you get more strict. Mm -hmm. The overall leader, the highest war player who appears on any of these lists is Bill Doran for the Houston Astros hmm. um, at 30.4. So that's about that's about as good as you can get without without receiving major recognition, at least from the uh, from the national media, we'll say, yeah. during your career. I remember Mark Ellis was a big one too, but I guess he got some rookie of the year support initially, right? Mm. But he never never got an all-star appearance, never got MVP votes, and he's a 33.5 baseball reference war at least. So he must be yes. on some list, right? Yes. And he is the leader for uh, the Oakland uh, Athletics, both got in it. no awards votes for the team and also no award votes ever. Mm -hmm. So uh, the on the low end, obviously, uh, some of the expansion franchises haven't had as much time to amass players with this much production. Although, on the other hand, there's more players in the league, so maybe there's more chance to spread those votes around. Mm -hmm. But we'll say the bottom of the list, uh, no awards for the team with the smallest value player there is uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks. Uh, Steven Drew, 13.2 wins above replacement. No award votes for the team. Uh, the trailer is Ricky Nolasco for the Miami Marlins at 10.6. Uh, and that's also the leader for no award votes ever. The last person I want to highlight here real quick, the highest war player who never received any aw major award votes in his career belongs to uh, Giants pitcher Jim Barr. 
uh, who played in the mostly in the seventies. He did spend a couple years with the Angels as well, but the bulk of his career was in San Francisco, where he put up twenty eight point four career WAR and has no uh, nothing in the awards column on his Baseball Reference page. Nothing to show for it. I put up twenty eight point four WAR, and all I got was this lousy stat blast mention. <laughs> I see Bill Hands high on some of these lists, the late Bill Hands, former Effectively Wild guest and Cold Call recipient, episode 964. So some familiar names here. Obviously, pretty good players toward the top of the list. Yeah, there's a few good ones. I uh, When I was putting this list together, I was kind of, again, the, the idea of you know being guided by puzzles or, or interesting prompts. I was kind of thinking about who are the, the fun, underrated players that you might feel like you got some good street cred if you had one of their jerseys, let's say. Okay. We will link to the full list if you want to peruse them on the show page, as always. What else you got? All right. The other one I have is a follow-up to uh, Stat Blast from episode 2060. Love a (laughs) follow-up. This was one that you shared previously that I had done, uh, inspired by a Bill James Q&A response. I don't remember Mm -hmm. exactly what the context was, but the general idea was you could generate more Hall of Fame discussions or debates with uh, if you had sort of a career tier list. So not just are you in the Hall of Fame or are you not in the Hall of Fame, but sort of a, a number of different tiers for players with all different sorts of career trajectories. Um, and then you could have discussions about, you know, does this person belong in tier two or tier three, um, et cetera. And, and I had done an initial stab at trying to categorize players with that, but I, I wasn't really happy with how it had worked out. So I, I, I had taken that to my dad who, who inspired my uh, passion for baseball. And, and he had some really good suggestions that I thought made it a little bit better. The first thing I did was actually cut down the number of tiers because originally it, it was at 10 and that was just too many. And also the high tiers were so small that they weren't really very meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, given that having a tier of one, sure, when it's Babe Ruth, that might mean something, but it's a little bit more helpful to define a tier with, with a decent number of people in it. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I did to adjust that was I changed the multiplier. So the way that I set up the tiers was I said there's a there's basically a maximum size for each tier. It has to be no more than X times the number of people in the tier below it. So you sort of have this, this graduated size. Um, and I can go through that real quickly here just to talk about the size of the tiers. But essentially, the first time I did, I had a multiplier. I think of two and a half, and it wasn't quite working out right. Was suggested to me that a very natural value to use here would be would be e, the mathematical constant e, which is a little more than two point five. It's about two point seven two, and that actually made some of some of the math work out a little bit better as well. So not only is it a natural value to use for this type of exponential growth. Um, it also does make some of the tiers work out a little bit better. So switch to that. And then the last change I made, which is kind of an unfortunate change, but with the retirement of Adam Dorowski's work at the Hall of Stats website, which was just yeah. shut down about a couple weeks ago. Um, and that was the metric I had used for the previous iteration of this. Um, I just switched over to using Career Fangraphs War. So <laughs> obvious some caveats apply with that. There are data issues around some of the Negro League stars who sure. had uh, major league equivalencies defined for some of their stat values at the Hall of Stats, but um, are maybe appearing in a slightly different position. 
question on this list, but um, you know, it's kind of the best we have with the data we have at this point. So the tier list now is down to seven tiers, and and I assigned a, a label to each tier to sort of describe kind of how you would think about it and what sort of general type of player would be in there if you're uh, if you're just sort of thinking about where to slot somebody in. Okay. And just to reiterate, this is a listing of every player who has ever appeared in Major League Baseball, right? It's not just who are the Hall of Famers. It's a seven-tier system for basically everyone who has a baseball reference page, more yeah. or less. Anything else is slacking, really. Just <laughs> exactly. try to be exactly. ambitious. Rank every single player. You've got to be comprehensive when you do this type of project. Yeah. So. Um, so so the first, the first tier, which has just made it to the show, um, this tier has 14,492 players, including about 1,000 active people. Obviously, this is – if your career is completed and you're in this tier, you're pretty much a cup of coffee guy, right? Maybe you played two to three seasons, but not particularly well. If you're an active player and you're in this tier, you're probably a rookie um, maybe you've contributed modestly, um, or maybe you're a quad A player who's just fighting for playing time. Uh, for example, the, the active player who's at the top of this tier is Tomas Nito. Um, <laughs> and he actually got bounced down here last season by putting up zero point, negative 0 0.7 oh, Fangraph no. Soir in 61 plate appearances for the Mets. Mm. Um, so this is essentially replacement level players. It's it's roughly about 0 0.8 wins above replacement is the cutoff um, okay. to make it out of tier one uh, into tier two, which I've called positive contributors. This is 5,331 players, including about 600 active players. These are guys who hung on for a while, but not usually longer than about five or six years. Um, if they did play longer, they were close to replacement level most of the time. Um, and then active players in this tier are uh, mostly pre-free agent guys uh, like Keston Hura, David Bodie, or maybe journeymen who have some limited value uh, like Bradley Zimmer or Brian Shaw. This is uh, essentially Fangraph's war between 1 and 10. And the, the person, the active player who is the closest to being promoted out of this tier is Manuel Margot. Mm. Oh, okay. New Dodger, rooting for him. Yeah, he, he needs uh, 0 0.05 wins above replacement. Oh, he can do it. He can make it very easily up to tier three, which I've called notable careers. Ooh, okay. um, this is a Fangraphs war between 10 and 25, approximately. It's got 1,961 players in it, including about 200 active guys. This is mostly people who've played 10 to 12-year careers, um, a few shorter careers of guys who were very good but flamed out fast, like uh, Yasiel Puig or uh, Brett Laurie. And active players in this tier have generally reached free agency or, or signed early extensions, obviously. Players like Steve Stone, uh, Chris Hoyles, John Lowenstein, some of the, some of the Orioles who are, who are at various points within this tier. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, and the closest to being promoted is Kevin Kiermeyer, who is mm. 0.2 war shy of the all-star tier, tier four. I've labeled it all-stars. Most players in this tier have made an all-star game or, or are of that caliber. 80% um, of guys in tier four have played at least 12 seasons. This is a Fangraphs war of between 25 and 45 or so. Uh, it's got 721 players, including about 60 active players. You you could say this is the hall of very good tier, um, and actually a couple of guys who are in the very top of this tier are BBWAA selections to the Hall of Fame. Um, guys like Catfish Hunter, Lou Brock, uh, mm -hmm. Rabbit Moranville, Bob Lemon. 
marginal Hall of Fame guys potentially if you want to feel if you want to be uncharitable. But uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the closest to being promoted out of this tier is Giancarlo Stanton. Mm. Mm. A little less confident in that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, he 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 needs two point six Fangraphs war, and uh, you know, of course, if he has a Pujols type of treading water or maybe moving slightly backwards, um, mm-hmm. you know, might take a little more time. But but two point six two point six feels doable potentially. Yeah. The following tier up from that tier five, I've called Hall of Fame candidates. Uh, this is Fangraphs war between about forty five and sixty five. There are 265 players in this tier, including 16 active players, uh, and that's Garrett Cole, Jacob deGrom, Josh Donaldson, Jose Ramirez, Bryce Harper, Chris Sale, Francisco Lindor, Nolan Arenado, Manny Machado, Andrew McCutcheon, Jose Altuve, Evan Longoria, Paul Goldschmidt, Joey Votto, Freddie Freeman, Mookie Betts. Okay. Um, so this is basically you, you get a sense of what the what this tier is. It's it's pretty much impossible to get here without playing for at least ten seasons, and we'll say most of the Hall of Fame debates that occur are about players in this tier. Obviously, depending on on how big a hall you prefer. But Mookie Betts is uh, is near the top of this tier, and he's about six and a half uh, wins above replacement from moving up to tier six, which I've called legends. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is 97 players, including six players who were active uh, this past season. Uh, That's Cabrera, Granke, Scherzer, Kershaw, Verlander, and Trout. You forgot Rich Hill, I think. Wow. (laughs) Well, podcast legend versus, uh, you know, career (laughs) legend is uh, two slightly different criteria, but uh, a special designation on BRF pages for that. Yes, you really do. Um, (laughs) I mentioned, you know, changing the multiplier that I used for these tier sizes had the sort of coincidental happy accident of making it such that this tier plus the seventh tier combined uh, is almost exactly the same size as the number of players that the BBWAA has selected for Hall of Fame induction. So that, ah, that kind of gives you, a, gives you a sense of the general caliber of, of player who are there. Okay. And then tier seven, which is now the top tier, which has a decent size of players in it now, is the all-time greats, I've called it, uh, Fangraphs War of 95 or more. It, these are essentially the inner circle guys, and it's most of the people you think of. Um, I'm not going to name all of them because there's about 35, but they're on the list here. I will call out Burt Blylevin uh, just because uh, my dad doesn't think he's that good, um, <laughs> but I suspect he's not alone in that in that assessment. But Fangraphs War says he is, so... Yes, the, there was a campaign on his behalf, which was successful, ultimately. Well, I like this tier system. Yeah. It was, uh, I think, an interesting proposal by Bill, and uh, you have taken it and run with it. Will you be maintaining this? Will it be available for people? I know it's in a spreadsheet, which we will link to. Yeah. I mean, I, I said when I did that a couple months ago for episode 2060, it was just kind of a one-off data pull from the Hall of Stats website. But um, I've been I've been trying to increase my um, ease of use, my comfort level with some of the Fangraphs leaderboards, and so I've I've uh, been trying to do more sort of data aggregation and 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 export and and messing around in there. So um, I think I'm feeling a little more a little better facility with some of that now, and I may I may try to keep this. Uh, keep this updated at least sort of for end of season uh, stats maybe going forward at least uh, for a couple of years. So we'll see how that goes. Cool. And then the last the last stat blast item I had here, and this is sort of, again, 
begging your apologies, a little bit more directly Hall of Fame related. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know how, how tired we are of that discourse yet, but <laughs> this was inspired by a conversation I was having with a friend of mine who was uh, dismissing Chase Utley as a compiler and uh, disparaging his, uh, his Hall of Fame resume, not even out of a sense of, you know, NL East rivalry, but as a genuine argument. And, and so that sort of inspired me to try to look specifically for, you know, Hall of Fame peak uh, discussions, because again, that's a, a perspective you hear often from some potential, not necessarily from Hall of Fame voters, but from people who care about the Hall of Fame who are who talk about the idea that enshrinement is reserved for sort of the best of the best or, yeah. or, or people who are clearly the best in their league or at their position uh, for some period of time. Utley didn't play long enough to be a compiler. He, yeah. he should have been. He should have compiled more. It probably would have helped him. Yeah, so that that's why I found that that perspective a little confusing, and and not wanting to simply argue on feelings and emotions. Uh, I, I always like to have some stats to back me up. So, inspired by the the seven year peak component of Jaws, um, I did some stat head querying. I did a breakdown per league and per position of basically a rolling seven year period. So. For each position in each league, in each seven-year span, consecutive span of years, I found the player with the highest uh, baseball reference war who was primarily a player at that position. And I did that for every year going back, every span of years going back to 1901. I did pitchers as well. Uh, I did the top five pitchers and, and, and then assigned points basically to players who showed up on that list. That was used to generate sort of a, a leaderboard of points for basically appearances in this seven-year uh, leader chart, we'll say. Mm -hmm. It was it was not particularly detailed breakdown. I just Gates said you get one point as a position player for each time you appear on the list. And for pitchers, I did something similar to Cy Young votes, where it was, you know, it's a one through five, and I did seven points for first place, uh, four points for second place, three points for third place, two points for fourth, and one point for fifth. And then I just put everybody in a list and looked at how many points people had and what sort of rate of Hall of Fame induction there was for players with various numbers of career points. Mm -hmm. So I've got a spreadsheet for this too, and I've highlighted uh, the players who are actually in the Hall of Fame. So you can sort of see as time goes on um, for various periods of time where the Hall of Famers were playing. Interesting to note that in the American League and in the National League, basically in the late 20s, early 30s, you have a Hall of Famer leading the league at every single position. Hmm. Um, and that doesn't happen that often. You normally, there's at least one position where there's, you know, some guy who had a short peak, but, you know, was showing up there for a couple years, let's say, as, right. as the best to do it. But partially maybe due to the higher percentage of uh, plate appearances taken by Hall of Famers in that time period, uh, they did actually get everybody in. And, you know, some of those are maybe not the best selections. Yes. But the other interesting thing I found is that practically everyone who's in the Hall of Fame actually does show up on this list, at hmm. least, you know, to get one point. You know, you think of it's you think good. of some of the Hall of Fame cases that it's like maybe this guy wasn't really the best selection, but for yeah. the most part, they all show up on here at some point. Now, there's a few who don't. And they pretty much fall into three categories, right? Certainly for position players, there's only 15 Hall of Fame position players who are not on this list. And when I say Hall of Fame position players, I'm referring to players inducted by the Baseball Writers Association during their regular balloting uh, or special elections for guys like Garrigan Clemente 
or the regular veterans committee process. So this is not, again, due to the limitations of the data sources, this is not accounting for the various Negro League committees, mm -hmm. um, other uh, special election processes that that were used to induct folks. But I was just looking at essentially the, the veterans committee and the era committees for players, as well as the regular BBWA election process. Okay. So there's a handful of guys who aren't. And like I said, they basically fall into three categories. There's five guys who were just blocked by like inner circle Hall of Famers who happen to be playing their same position in their same league at the same time. Um, so this is Richie Ashburn uh, in the National League center field blocked by Willie Mays and Duke Snyder. Uh, That's unfortunate. Yeah. Hank, <laughs> Hank Greenberg, American League mm. first baseman blocked by Lou Gehrig and Jimmy Fox. Uh, yeah. He's he's one of the two BBWA inductees. Um, there's Joe Tinker, uh, who's blocked by Hannes Wagner. Uh, we have Chuck Klein, a National League right fielder who was a career overlapped with that of Mel Otts. And then you have Sam Rice uh, in the American League uh, right fielder who was blocked sort of around the same time as Chuck Klein uh, by somebody named uh, George, I think. Yeah, George Sherman. <laughs> mm, yes. Um, so that that's one category. Those guys just for they they were just unfortunate to play at the same time as as a few legends. Um, there's another few guys who don't show up here just because they changed leagues, and so mm. the way that I was doing it, you know, they didn't really get partial credit for either league. They just sort of got shut out. Mm -hmm. um, so that's Ted Simmons uh, who changed leagues uh, around the same time as Johnny Bench and Carlton Fisk were doing their things. You got Vlad Guerrero uh, Sr., who changed leagues around the same time that Sammy Sosa and Ichiro were were being very productive. And then you have Fred McGriff, yeah. who changed leagues uh, while um, you know Eddie Murray and Don Mattingly were uh, taking the AL crowns, and Jeff Bagwell was doing his thing in the National League. Right. And then the third category is there's just a few people who are they're all Veterans Committee picks and. They are some of the ones who, again, you might charitably uh, describe as marginal. Um, if you were feeling uncharitable, you might describe them as a misguided. This is Heine Manouche, Rabbit Moranville, uh, Lou Brock, Harold Baines, mm. Rick Farrell, uh, mm. who was I had not really was not very familiar with, but he was a catcher for the American League in the uh, 30s and 40s. Lloyd Wayner and High Pockets Kelly. But his brother, Low Pockets, totally deserving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, Rick Farrell's brother, actually Wes Farrell, was yes. uh, was excellent, right? And, yes, and, and Lloyd and Lloyd Wayner's brother, uh, Paul. Yes, as well. but Wes <laughs> is not a Hall of Famer. Rick is unjust. Must have made yes. things difficult at the family gatherings. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And for pitchers, it's even more simple. There's obviously there's the relievers who who don't get any points in the system just because of the way the system is set up. Um, but then there's just three pitchers. There's only three pitchers who don't non reliever pitchers who don't have any points in the system, and that's Wait Hoyt, who mm -hmm. changed leagues. There's Catfish Hunter, who will say maybe more of his Hall of Fame resume depends on his postseason performance than other players, mm -hmm. as well as his perfect game. And then there's Jesse Haynes, who, again, you'll be forgiven for not recalling because he's mostly in the Hall of Fame because he was teammates with Frankie Frisch. Yep. <laughs> A lot of people can say that. <laughs> Those are the shutout guys. But what I found even more interesting was to look at among the players who are currently on the ballot where they fall in this uh rating again you know primarily peak oriented but what kind of guys show up here that you might not think uh were, were as high as they were so for position players if you look at 
people who are retired, they're already off the ballot, and whether or not they're in the Hall of Fame, you basically, if you have, we'll say, six to eight points in this um, metric, people with that many points are roughly 50-50 to make the Hall of Fame. If you have nine or more points, it's more like 90% that you're in. Um, especially if you, you know, account for some people who would be in, you know, clearly on the basis of their on-field performance, but have uh, some other concerns keeping them off, like Barry Bonds, for example. Who is the uh, the position player leader in this metric? By the way, he has 19 points, uh, which is more than anyone else. So basically, 19 different seven-year spans, and obviously those seven-year spans overlap with each other a lot. But basically, every year in the National League from you know, uh, in 1985 through 2009. And just recall that that span includes a number of years where he was not playing. But right. if you looked at the span 2003 to 2009, for example, for that for that time span of time, no National League left fielder amassed more wins above replacement than Barry Bonds, even though he, uh, you know, was retired for two of those years and uh, not particularly good for a couple of them. So he's at the top, but there's a few guys who are on the ballot who are um, in that sort of six to eight range that is sort of marginal Hall of Fame or, you know, 50% Hall of Fame case. Chase Utley is actually at nine points, so he pretty mm -hmm. easily clears here. Justified um, this whole exercise for you? <laughs> absolutely. So this was completely worth it, and thank you for uh, thank you for uh, indulging me on that. Um, the other the other guys in the six to eight range currently are actually Sal Perez is there. He's at eight right now, even though he's still active. Guys on the ballot with uh, in that range, Andrew Jones has eight points. Nolan Arenado has seven points. Uh, Joe Maurer has seven points. His peak is very much in line with this criteria. Adrian Beltre has six points, and it's interesting that he's, you know, obviously his his peak is not going to be the reason why he makes it into Cooperstown, but he's right there too, as well as a few other active guys who are in that range as well. Uh, Buster Posey and Ryan Braun, you know, not active, but pending, mm -hmm. pending ballot appearances. Andrew McCutcheon is at six points. Uh, Miguel Cabrera is at seven points. Nolan Arenado, I think I mentioned, is at seven points. Ichiro and Albert Pujols each have eight points. And uh, the active player with the most points, of course, is Mike Trout at 10. And on the pitching side, it, it's roughly similar. I mean, there's there's been so much conversation around what the what the Hall of Fame induction standards are for pitchers now and, and kind of what that means. But pitchers' numbers are a lot higher in this metric just because the number of points available is a lot higher. So um, the leader, for example, now remember this is seven points for each time that you lead the league. Um, Roger Clemens is the leader, all-time leader, with 106 points. You know, most guys who get sort of in the 25 to 35 range are kind of that's the kind of the 50 percent bucket. And some of the players on the on the active ballot who are in that range are actually there's not a lot of guys on the ballot in that range. Uh, Mark Burley's at 23 points. Andy Pettit and Bartolo Colon are both squeaking in with the two points each. But some of the other active guys who we expect to get in are up here. You know, Justin Verlander has 70 points. Clayton Kershaw has uh, 60 points. Max Scherzer has 35 points. So Chris Sale has 29 points. And again, obviously his peak is what it is. Uh, not necessarily going to get him into the hall on its own merits, but um, but it's sort of in line with what a lot of other uh, Hall of Fame type players have had. Well, very topical. We will get the actual results a little later this month, but you already got one result you wanted with Chase Utley's ranking there. So well done. And <laughs> we will share this and we will share the survey 
that you can fill out to help Michael organize and figure out what the Effectively Wild Ballparks Across America fan activity is going to be in this upcoming season. Michael, thank you very much. Absolutely. Always a pleasure, Ben. Thank you. And Meg and I will take a quick break, and we will be right back with Brian Moritz, who predicts a major sports betting journalism scandal is coming. I predict Brian Moritz is coming up on Effectively Wild. Mark, I heard the same thing from us. Every series I've been to has been some rumor about a fix just to shake up the odds. You hang out in bars, you hear a lot of screwy things. Doesn't mean they're not true. My guys would have told me something was up. Sure they would, kid. Give them hell out there. Let's keep separate scorecards. You circle every play that smells fishy. I'll do the same. We'll compare them after the game. Probably nothing to it. Yeah, nothing to it. Well, you may remember that when we did our bold preseason predictions last year, one of mine was that there would be some sort of sports betting scandal in baseball's minor leagues, which did not happen. At least the scandal didn't happen. We assume the betting didn't happen either. And to be clear, I am happy that it didn't happen, even though it meant that my prediction was wrong. However, undeterred by my failed bold prediction about a major sports betting scandal, Brian Moritz has made his own for 2024, although his is specific to sports media. He published a piece in December at Neiman Lab. A major sports betting journalism scandal is coming. He is here to discuss it with us today. He is an associate professor at St. Bonaventure University, where he directs the online master's programs in sports journalism and digital journalism. He's also the author of Sports Media Guy, a newsletter about sports journalism and sports media. What kind of odds did you think people had on <laughs> us inviting you onto the podcast today? Um, I'm going to go at about 14 to 1 with the over-under on uh, 128 minutes. Um, <laughs> I actually don't know how long we're going to be, but uh, <laughs> but I appreciate you guys having me on. I'm always happy to talk about stuff like this. I think it's a, it's a really, really fascinating topic, not just the journalism angle, but the whole kind of rise in legal and accessible gambling is really changing so much about how we consume sports and about sports itself. I'm always happy to talk about it. Yes, in so many wonderful ways. And yes. Meg and I have stubbornly resisted even understanding how odds work, I think. Okay, good. So. Well, I, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'm glad you say that because I, uh, in my in my previous life, I, I worked at newspapers and when we would do the, the agate page, which is for anybody under 40, is the page where you would have all the standings and the box scores and everything. And you would always have the latest line, which was the betting odds for the day. Right. And I mean, that was along with the comics and the obituaries were the three things you could not leave out of the paper or you would just get inundated with phone calls and angry people. Yeah. And I swear to, to this day, I don't know what baseball odds mean. Do you guys? Because I have no idea how to read a baseball odds. No, unless okay, you mean the Fangraphs playoff probabilities that I can read. But, <laughs> yeah. but no. Those get I, mistaken for betting odds sometimes, which, yeah. boy, let me tell you how fun it is to explain that difference on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I think I understand probability. I hope I do to some extent. <laughs> but when it comes to the actual odds, I always have to remind myself what they mean because I'm not a betting man. But right. you have sounded the alarm here about possible betting people 
in our ranks in sports media. Could be any of us. Look to your left, look to your right. Could be the next sports journalist who's going to do a scandal. What is the vulnerability that you have identified here? So I think the main vulnerability, it's kind of a twofold twofold thing I, that I see it. One is, you know, like we, we, we kind of already hinted at, you know, the Supreme Court legalizing sports gambling or saying states could legalize it, I should say. And so it becoming much more widespread and it becoming more accessible, which is kind of the, the I think the, the other important piece of that, you know, it's legal, but now you don't have to drive to a sports book. You don't have to drive to a racetrack or a casino to gamble. You can just do it with, from your phone as you're watching a game during a game. And so I think that that that's made gambling and betting on sports and sports adjacent things much more within the reach of a lot of people. And I think the other thing, the other reason that that I think something might be might, could potentially happen in sports media here is the lack of professional guardrails that are in place around gambling and sports journalism. You know, when you look at you know the ethical guidelines that that govern Journalism, and I say govern loosely. You know, this is not like law. This is not like stock trading. This is not like medicine, where your codes of ethics carry legal and professional ramifications. Right? They're they're best practices. They're they're you know voluntary codes, the guidelines, not rules, so to speak. And and you look at them, and there's nothing directly related to gambling in any of them, especially the sports ones, which I found interesting. And, you know, you, you can kind of like if you read creatively, you can you can, you know, apply certain ones to to gambling. But, you know, the APSC, the American uh, AP Sports Editors Ethical Guidelines has nothing about gambling, but it has a whole section about the ethics of sharing notes with other reporters. <laughs> and, you know, it, it just struck me that. It is a scandal likely. Like, I think it could happen. I might have overblown it for the, uh, the uh, uh, added to the hyperbole a little bit for the sake of the prediction piece. I don't think that's, I think I basically acknowledge that in the piece as well. But I think without those kind of specific guidelines, I think what happened in sports journalism and around sports media is gambling became legal, gambling became accessible. All this sponsorship money flooded in, all this opportunity, all this stuff started happening, and nobody nobody has had that pause, right? No kind of leaders in sports journalism have, have had that collective, hey, how should we handle this? How do we how do we deal with with the fact that gambling's legal now and people are using our reporting to make bets and now we're sp- maybe sponsored? You know, our company may have a partnership with a gambling organization or a sports book. And how do we deal with deal with the perception of that? And that's kind of where I see the opportunity is right is ripe for something to happen. I don't have a specific idea. Oh, we can talk about this. I don't have like a specific inflection point or like an a specific like thing that's going to happen. It's just it, it just feels like something's about to blow in this in this area. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, if I can offer you some reassurance, although I share your broader concern, I mean, I can't speak to what the other big sports are doing with their writing associations. I know Mm -hmm. that the BBWAA, we voted at the winter meetings this year to adopt um, specific guidelines that are the language of which I think is still being finalized, but adopt specific guidelines around um, sports betting, both sort of ethical best practices and then also specific guidelines, particularly for awards voters, because, boy, are people interested in what your rookie of the year vote's going to be when they want to place a bet in Vegas. So right. there is, I think, 
a growing acknowledgement on the part of some of these professional associations that like this is a point of potentially very real vulnerability for us, both from a an actual betting perspective, but then also just a credibility perspective. But I'm curious whether you think that will be sufficient because you can have ethical guidelines, you can have rules in your constitution that give you the ability to expel members if they run afoul of those guidelines. But, you know, it puts you in this position where you basically have to get caught before there are any repercussions. Are there, what are your ideas around sort of how this can be monitored and sort of verified on the part of these associations? Because you'd have to, someone would have to know, right, that you had leaked what is essentially material non-public information or that you had gone and placed a bet. But you know, that requires discovery on the part of uh, understaffed and under-resourced professional associations. Yeah, it was a great question. First of all, Meg, I want to thank you for letting me know about the uh, BBWAA. I had heard that right around the time the piece, I wrote the piece and the piece came out that uh, that this was going to be voted on at the winter meetings. And I kind of heard it like on a, in, a, in conversation. So I didn't know like how public that was. So I'm glad that it's going to be, it's being adopted. I can't wait to see the language. I think that's, yeah. that's super, that's super important. It's a twofold problem, and I think the enforcement thing is a really difficult challenge because you're right. You don't have – there's not an investigative arm of the BBWAA that's going out there and examining, making sure everyone's acting on the up and up, and there's no inspections of your information sharing or all of that. The flaw in my grander argument, which I firmly acknowledge, is that these writers – the writers' guidelines from the journalism organizations or from the writers' organizations, they don't have – I mean, they have some power, but you get kicked out of the BBWAA. You don't get, like, stripped of your journalism license or whatever. That would happen in medicine. Right. That would happen in law or something along the lines of that. And also you have the challenge that, you know, let's say you get 100 percent – uh, following of the of the letter and spirit of the law by BBWAA members. Well, not everyone who tweets or writes or bets about baseball is a BBWAA member, right? right. And so they they can act with you know ethics rules, schmethics rules. And I think that that's a that's a challenge that we you know in broader journalism you face as well. That it's more just kind of like professional norms and best practices and not rule of law. So it's an unsatisfying answer because I don't know. I don't know about enforcement and I don't know, like it really does have to kind of come down to basically individual uh, reporters to act ethically and individual editors to to kind of maintain that expectation. And, you know, reporters shouldn't keep their jobs if they act unethically, whether it's placing a bet or doing anything else that's kind of out of the realm of unethical. And I think that, you know, adding gambling uh, certainly to that, I, th I think one of the things that can come from this is adding thoughts on gambling and however it's however it's laid out to that ethical discussion on the same level of you don't make up quotes, you don't take money from a player from a player to write their story, something along you know something along those lines, those kind of established ethical violations that we know about in journalism, and kind of adding gambling into that category. I mean, it's an imperfect first step, but I do think it's a first step that needs to be taken. ESPN did something similar right ahead of the launch of its sports book. It's branded ESPN Bet Sportsbook. They told staffers that they can't do this and that, right? And mm -hmm. again, who knows if this has teeth or if there's any 
any monitoring involved whatsoever if it's just on our system. But well, I, I, I can say really quick, Ben, if you don't mind, mm-hmm. I can say I, I have friends who work at ESPN and who have worked at ESPN and I've talked to them on and off the record. And there really is at ESPN, there really is a, a, a very strict, almost firewall between the ESPN bet, which is basically just a branded, like yeah. they put their name on a sports book. That's all mm-hmm. it is compared to the actual operation in Bristol. You know, I think all eyes are always on ESPN because of its, you know, enormous power and influence in in this space. I tend to think any scandal that's going to happen isn't going to happen at ESPN just because, A, that firewall is in place. And for all we can say about ESPN and could say about ESPN, they do take that journalistic integrity part of their business very, very seriously. And I think they've got that. They, as a company, have a lot to lose in this. And I think that they would be – I would be stunned if anything happened with ESPN. I don't see it happening. Uh, Smaller outlets are kind of more – that are more integrated with sports books. Or the sports books themselves reporting news. I think that's where, and again, that gets into a, another muddled area here of the the classic age old who's a journalist debate. We're not going to relive the blogger wars of the early two thousands, but I do think that there is this idea. There's there's this notion that as a sport as a consumer of sports news, you can you're getting stuff on social media, you're getting stuff on, online, uh, on your phone, on push alerts, and journalists and book and sports books and they're all kind of you all kind of get them in the same place and so it it can very much bleed together where you don't necessarily stop to think oh this is a, a an independent journalist for a news organization reporting this versus this is somebody who's partnered with Bally Sports and and making that 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 distinction and so i think those those blurred lines are part of what makes this such a challenging area I'd be happy not to have another ESPN scandal because I've had my fill of other sorts of ESPN scandals lately. And it's only January 11th. My goodness. (laughs) In Uh. your piece, you lay out a couple of theoretical ways that this could happen to different routes to the possible sports journalism scandal. Do you want to describe the different ways that you imagine that it could go down? The first one is kind of like the sports media version of insider trading, right? And so uh, this is actually uh, laid out to me by my friend Tim Graham, who works at The Athletic and who I've known for years, uh, used to work in Las Vegas as a reporter back in the late 90s, I think. And, you know, the the, the insider trading scenario is basically you're covering uh, a basketball team practice and you're the reporter, you're the beat writer. And you go, and it's the day before a game, and star point guard comes down, lands on his ankle, twists it, obvious pain, like it's bad, can't put weight on it. You know he's like, no chance he's going to be able to play. He or she. You go to your phone, you got two apps next to each other. One is the app formerly known as Twitter, where you would go on and say, just saw player X hurt their ankle, doesn't look good. Next one is FanDuel or any any number of the sports books where you could go and because you can bet on literally anything in sports, you could place a bet on the game knowing in, in information that nobody else knows yet. What do you do as a sports reporter? That's kind of like the the Death Star scenario, I think. You know, I and, and what's funny about that is, you know, when I when I started looking into this this topic about almost a year and a half ago now, that was kind of like the primary thing I think we all thought of as the potential for you know sports, you know, the insider trading, the you're profiting. You know, Meg, you mentioned this earlier. You're profiting off of you know unreleased news. 
And when I talk to people, like that doesn't really seem to be likely, especially at the highest levels, the pro levels, you know. And it's basically because the the way the media, the sports media ecosystem is. I mean, scoops last for seconds. You're not going to take the time to place a bet and let somebody else break the story by five seconds. That five seconds matters to people. That is. That is professional currency. That absolutely matters. Whether it's kind of ridiculous or not, it does matter. And so I think – and then at the lower levels, you know, let's be honest. At the lower levels of Division One men's and women's basketball and baseball and all that, you probably don't have reporters covering practices anymore because there aren't sports writers who are covering these teams at that level anymore. So that's potential, but it's unlikely. And I think the, the one of the more likely ones that we see is – you know, it, it's what happened with uh, Shams over the summer with the NBA draft when he reported a change in one of the players' draft status, and he was hearing somebody might go number two. And Shams has a partnership with, I believe, FanDuel. I don't remember. I'm pulling that off the top of my head, so please correct me if I'm wrong. And that affected the betting lines and it, uh, on who would go number two because, again, you can bet on literally anything. And it ended up the player wasn't taking number two, but it raised a lot of questions. Was Shams reporting that to move the betting line to make the company he has a partner with more more money? He's denied it. There's been no evidence of that. But you see the problem with all of this is that when we deal with ethics and we deal with gambling and, and reporting, it's a matter of perception, not necessarily reality. The perception is what matters. That's what these journalism ethics rules are all about. You know, it is a guideline against, you know, improper and proper behavior, but it's much more about how the public reads and perceives our our reporting and and the news that's being reported. Do they take it as it's being reported and it's independent and it's correct and it's verified and it's fair and accurate and all those things we love in journalism? Or is it meant to drive you to maybe place five bucks on, on, a, on a draft pick or a game. You know, one thing I was thinking about before we recorded today, I was trying to think of a baseball-related example. And, you know, you know, you can think back to the weekend when uh, Shohei Otani was maybe going to Toronto for like that hour and a half before he ended up signing with the Dodgers, right? Mm -hmm. so, so think of it this way. You know, you remember the reports that came out that he was headed to Toronto or something like that. But now imagine that tweet, the post, the whatever – that had that instead of just like you know, Shohei Otani is headed to Toronto. My sources tell me now. Imagine that there's a link to DraftKings in that tweet, or to, uh, take twenty percent off your first bet on the MLB season link in the tweet, and it takes you and you could bet to Toronto winning the AL East or the American League or something like that. All of a sudden, now that changes the nature of that reporting. Right now, it's not just. Shohei Otani might be going to Toronto and oops, the reporter goofed up for however. Now it's like the reporter, the perception of it changes, right? Now it's not the reporter goof. Now it's like he was trying to change us to get us to bet, to put money on Toronto. And that totally changes the nature of how we see, how we, the audience, see and interact with the information. And I think that the the partnerships that exist like, I know why they exist. It's capitalism, money talks, sports books have the money. But I think there does need to be kind of care to make sure that that it's clear when a, a news outlet or a, a 
sports outlet is reporting news that it's not directly linked to and now bet on it because that that calls that that can call the information into question. Like, are you reporting it because it's accurate or are you reporting it because this is going to move the line and we can make an extra hundred thousand dollars from people betting Toronto or whatever? Yeah, that opera singer in Toronto who tweeted out the rumor about the Yusei Kikuchi sushi <laughs> reservation <laughs> potentially left a lot of money on the table there. It really but, did. Yeah. Yeah. There was no link to a sports bet in the tweet. So I took it as gospel. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, opera singers are well known for their breaking <laughs> baseball news, as you guys well know. Yep. I think there's like a third category of concern, at least that I have. And I, I wonder what you make of this. There's the potential to act on what is essentially material non-public information. There's the sort of blurring of the motivation for reporting a piece of information about a player's status, a team's outlook, a transaction, what have you. And then, you know, it strikes me that there's this third category of sort of failure to, potential failure to report at all. I mean, I think that when you if you're a consumer of sports media and you are going to either, you know, DraftKings or FanDuel or any of these sites directly, which have, you know, sort of sports related content, some of which is explicitly gambling related, some of which is a little bit broader in its scope, or you're going to a, an outlet that has an established relationship with a particular book, I think that there are going to be a number, uh, a lot of readers who are savvy enough to understand that, like, you know, the the water's sort of been um, muddied in terms of what master you're serving. The the thing that I worry about more is, and I don't want to pick on ESPN because I, I think I agree with you that they seem, you know, like they have the appropriate measures in place, at, at least when it comes to their, their scoops folks, they're newsbreakers, but we don't know yet what the ramifications for sports betting are going to be on the team side. We've gotten some insight into that in the last 12 months, right, where we've had a number of scandals related to team personnel, whether it's professionals or in the college ranks, sort of betting on what we assume to be information that they had that other people don't. We don't yet really know what the full sort of ramifications are going to be for bettors now that they, as you noted, can just bet from their couch rather than having to go to a sports book, right? I don't think we have a great sense yet of what the potential addictiveness is, how that, ch how that conversation changes when it's in your pocket versus not. And those are sports stories, right? Betting scandal in the sport is a sports story. The impact on betters is a sports story. And I wonder what we make of the incentives that outlets that have a tie to a sports book are going to have when faced with either of those, right? Because they have a profound incentive now for us to think that betting is not harmful to individuals, that it's not influencing games or leagues, that it is, you know, ethical and above board. And I think that that's an open question in some instances. So even if there isn't a direct monetary link on the part of the reporter, what do you make of those incentives when these outlets are tying themselves to to sports books? It's I mean, kind of that, a leading question. So, yeah, sorry. no, that's a it's a fantastic <laughs> it's a, for a leading question. It is a fantastic one, and it and it has a lot of layers to it. I think I think one of the 
when you see now a gambling scandal, like the college baseball ones that happened in spring and summer of 2023, when they happen or when a player gets in trouble for betting uh, in any sport, you know, what's one of the instant reactions you see from people? You know, this suspension sponsored by DraftKings or whatever, right? And I think that there is this weird kind of place where sports media has taken collectively as an industry has taken a lot of sponsorship money and a lot of a lot of that from gambling and so it does become harder to report on the social harms that can come from gambling or the 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 potential downsides of it you know whether it's from a team aspect a player aspect a sport aspect or just the individuals you know who are who are doing this i think you see a lot of yay gambling or at the very least you see a lot of well get we've been doing it all along we might as well just talk we're just talking about it openly now you know i do wonder and and your your point on the, the stories about gambling and the addictive nature and the and the challenges of it, you know, these are important journalism stories. And will you see them? Will you see them covered by an ESPN? Will they be, uh, you know, something on in the Athletic about it? And you know, I think there, there are two two kind of points on this. You know, one is. I think one of the fears I have about sports journalism and gambling and and how the twain meet and all of that going forward is you know you speak of incentives what are the, what are media outlets incentivized now to focus their journalism on on their news on their content on it's going to be probably stuff that leans toward actionable betting information. And again, this is getting away from including links or partnerships, but it's going to be a lot less stories about social aspects of sports or, you know, not just gambling, you know, race relations, gender relations, LGBTQ stuff, all of that, because what gets covered, what, what are, do, are people interested in seeing who's going to play, who's hurt, who's getting traded. And a lot of that is information that you can gamble on. Gamblers are sports journalists, journalists, best customers, right? They crave information. They want more They They can never have enough information on the on the games because information is power in this in this world and i do wonder what gets lost in a in a sports media landscape that's so influenced by the popularity of gambling that you know the you know you follow the incentives the incentives are going to be toward that game to game lineup you know stuff you can bet on you can't bet on Simone Biles' battles with the twisties and what it means for mental health in in in, in athletics and that kind of thing. You can't bet on that. I doubt. Maybe you can. Who knows what they've come up I with. I would but, bet against being <laughs> unable to bet on anything yeah. at right? this point. Cause but <laughs> at this point, at, at this point, you're right. But, but, but I think that that is, you know, I, I think that's one of my big fears is, you know, what gets incentive, what coverage gets incentivized, what coverage isn't, and then what gets lost a, a, as we as an industry focus on on that specific information. You know, that, that that's one of those things that when you think about it, you know, we think of and, you know, I wrote the thing about the scandal that something bad happens and it and it and it's a flashpoint, a situation. But I think the long term kind of ramifications, like you pointed out, I think that's interesting, too. And I think that's kind of more of a potential of a slow burn scand scandal if there is such a thing um where it's not just maybe that one eruption but this kind of very slow loss of something in sports media yeah and it's so 
impossible to avoid the tendrils of this if you're in sports media, right? I mean, in some senses, it's the thing propping up much of sports media and maybe not doing it so well because it's a pretty, you know, tenuous existence, right? And lots of layoffs in Mm -hmm. all forms of media, right? And so you're kind of in this relationship where you're uneasy about being dependent on those sources of revenue. But then if those were to go away, things might be even worse for (laughs) many of the the people you know and like, right? And even if you have no personal interest in this whatsoever, you create no gambling content, you still have a hard time avoiding any kind of connection. I mean, speaking for myself, right? I work for The Ringer. The Ringer has a partnership with FanDuel. One of the two sponsors we've had on this podcast is Tops. We obviously don't do gambling ads and we never would, but Tops's parent company does right. also do sports book stuff separately, mm-hmm. right? So it's mm-hmm. it's so hard to avoid any of these entanglements to maintain complete sports book purity at this point, right? And right. you know, it, I can testify to not ever having had that affect my coverage in any way, but you are sort of uh, indirectly dependent on it whether you want to be or not. I mean, and that's kind of one of those things where you get into ownership, you know, in, in any kind of corporately owned media environment, you get, I mean, I mean, like like you said, you start going up the chain and who has partnerships with who and who works with who. I mean, you, you, right. you drive yourself, you, you drive yourself crazy and, you know, conspiracy theorists have, you know, make a living because they can do stuff like that and they can tie that all together. And, you know, I do think, you know, kind of tying it back to our, our, our initial conversation, you know, I think that's where those kind of guidelines from writers organizations and from journalism groups, th- they help. Are they perfect? No. Will they do away with everything? No. No, but they do. Again, it's much more the way I kind of view it is it's kind of like putting in guardrails or, you know, the, the, the bumpers that you blow up when you take your little kid bowling and uh, and 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 it keeps the ball out of the gutter. You know, you're not going to you're not going to fix everything. But as long as you kind of have the, the 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 guardrails up that can kind of protect protect the reporters, protect the fans, protect the readers, protect the company, protect everybody as much as possible, then I think that's, you know, at some level, that's the best you can do. You know, there are always going to be potentially bad faith actors who do bad things. They're going to be greedy people who do greedy things. And you can't legislate that out of existence, but you can kind of provide those those guidelines and those rules to kind of help the industry as a whole understand what should and shouldn't happen with the, in this space. Is there any, <laughs> this is sort of a fatalistic question, so I apologize in advance, but like, is there any path out of the influence that sports betting has in the industry now? Like, do you see this as an issue that sort of has a natural saturation point and then we can kind of take stock of where we are and it might, the the sort of enthusiasm for sports betting might um, slack or is there, do you think that th- this is just the beginning of increased influence within the industry? Because it's it's hard to watch a, a baseball broadcast, it's hard to watch an NFL broadcast without, you know, hearing about a betting line at least a couple of times. And we right. always sort of got the, like the Al Michaels tongue in cheek, you know, this might be interesting to some parties, but now it's just... Now, when a guy misses a late field goal, like you're hearing about what it means for the over under on the game, right? Like what the what the spread was. So, 
Yeah, I think I, I, I use some of those terms correctly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I, I think that's that's a that's an interesting point. You know, I, and I wrote about this, jeez, uh, over almost two years ago, I think. The language of sports and sports itself and gambling have always been the the Venn diagrams a circle, right? Like it is a it, it has always been intertwined, right down to think of your favorite sports movie. What is it most likely? An underdog story. What's well, an underdog? You see where I'm going with this, right? Like the, the, it's always been, you know, gambling and sports have always been interconnected. And, you know, what what has happened is, yes, we've gone from the L. Michaels, this might be interesting to some people, or, you know, Jimmy the Greek saying, I like Cincinnati by a lot this weekend because he couldn't say the point spread, to now being kind of just more openly saying it. And so I, th- I think that that's always worth pointing out is that the, that that gambling's always been a part of sports and always been a part of sports media. And now we're just kind of, now we're just saying all the quiet parts out loud or saying the 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 euphemisms are gone and now we're just straight up saying it. I actually would not be surprised if we're getting close to a saturation point in terms of in terms of a lot of these sites these sites in sports in sports gambling from the standpoint of growth like i think the gambling will always be obviously a very big business and i think it will always draw a ton of money but what has kind of fueled it i think lately has been it's gone we've we went from i think the supreme court was in 2018 the decision so we've gone from zero to ludicrous speed in that time and so it, it it's kind of given us whiplash and obviously if you're in the the sports media space or listening to the sports podcast you were over kind of oversaturated with it because every other podcast was sponsored by by them or every ESPN thing was spon- you know every game is sponsored by them and but but I do it, it is interesting as you say that because I I think we are kind of reaching the point where it's becoming almost just a part of the landscape and not this big new feature that we're all shocked is here and trying to figure out how to how to how to deal with it like we are still trying to figure out how to deal with it but but it would not surprise me if like in a year or two uh we you know in general it it it, it goes it just kind of feels like it's always been there and maybe it's just me maybe i'm just around it so much that i that i know that i i find myself i should say noticing it a lot less than i did a few years ago and you know that's an N of one. I don't know if that means anything, but but it does it does feel like you know we are hitting that that point where sports gambling's just here. And you know maybe you know maybe on some level the ESPN bet thing was that that plateau. You know once ESPN had that that partnership, however it is with a sports book, like that was the last big thing it felt like to happen and now that it has it's kind of like okay this is it now this the the this isn't just a new reality anymore it's reality and now we deal with what we have instead of trying to to fight does that make sense it just it just kind of feels like we've hit i don't know if saturation but it doesn't feel as new and weird and funny anymore it just kind of feels like okay it's here now 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 the grown-ups have to start talking about it yeah, you develop a tolerance to it, right? Yeah. It's just the the steady background noise. It's not a new stimulus anymore. Right. And there have been forecasts of, say, a, a sportsbook advertising bubble, right? 
bursting the way that the cable bundle bursts it once the ROI is reduced because you've acquired all of the customers that you can acquire or you've carved out all the market share that you can carve out, then you won't be just splurging enormous amounts of money to advertise anymore. And then we'll see if there's some sort of sports media crash that comes from that. So either way, we've got it great here. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I, I wonder just because... You know, media members like to talk about the media and journalists can get a bit navel geezy at times. And maybe some people might be saying, does this matter to me as a non-media member? Why should I care? Why would I even know if someone secretly placed a, a bet before they reported a rumor or something or they learned something that was true, but they lined their coffers before they brought it to everyone's attention. I think you gave good reasons. You want to have faith in the coverage and you want to know that it's motivated by good motives, not money-making motives for the person who would be profiting off of them. But I guess in the grand scheme of potential pitfalls of the legalization of gambling, everything from the bottom of the scale and hierarchy, just the general annoyance of being constantly exposed to sports betting stuff if you're not interested in sports betting stuff, to the top of the scale, people having their lives destroyed by gambling addiction, right? And everything in between, which could be match fixing, let's say, where would the sports journalism scandal potential rank? Is that is that one of the, is that lower on the ladder? I, I, I would say, yeah, it's definitely lower than, you know, match fixing or or, or, or something along those lines. And by the way, you describing uh, journalists as being quite navel-gazy, you've literally described my entire academic career. <laughs> I may Subscribe have to my, in my, in my sports media guy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I think, you know, this is one of the, what makes sports journalism such a fascinating thing for to study and 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 to think about because yeah at the end of the day a sports journalism scandal about you know when somebody reported something is so far down the the level of concern for the average fan the average person you know you know not just in the sports world but you know taking the world at large like this is you know not if if I falsely report that uh, somebody's going to get drafted second in the NBA and they end up going fourth, and I make and I did that knowing that I was going to make my sports book an extra million dollars in bets, you know, at the end of the day, that is a very media scandal, and you know, you can say who's really hurt by it, but the people who bet their money on it, they lost their money, you know, that that that's a loss. They are hurt by it, and I think it, to to the you know, if you extrapolate it out to to the larger issue, I think it becomes an, you know, it's all part and parcel of the greater trust that people have in media and in journalism as a whole and in news media. And, you know, when I said sports journalism is such an interesting way to study it, way, way to study journalism, it's because, yeah, what happens in sports journalism is far lesser important to society than reporting on the 2024 election and the aftermath and everything that's going on with all of that nonsense, right? But at the same time, people view media the same way and it's all the media or it's all the news or it's all journalists and that. And, you know, I, I think that how people view sports media can affect how they view news media or media in general. And I think, you know, kind of at a, you know, at a time when uh, trust in media and in all institutions, but in media and in news media and in journalism, 
I don't know if it's at an all-time low, but it sure feels like it's at an all-time low or it's very low and it's not like very, super I don't see like a boom coming. You know, <laughs> I think I think that anything that happens that hurts any journalist's credibility hurts all of us. You know, whether that is a, a scandal on the, on the political side of journalism, whether that's, you know, somebody fudging around with the timelines to make a couple extra bucks on on a, on a bet on a women's basketball game where they saw somebody get hurt in practice, you know I think it's all it all leads to to credibility and to how people see how the news is reported and how they believe how things are reported and that has really wide ranging conflicts. So you know I think I think that would be my answer to that would be just if we're looking at the credit you know I think the the sports journalism gambling question slash scandal at the end of the day it's a credibility scandal. You know do yeah. we do we believe in what we're reading? Do we believe that the journalists that we're reading are presenting us fair, accurate information? or is there something else driving it and in the case of gambling and sports that's something else coming in is you know that that potential for influence for ickiness is just it's really high and i think that's something that that that's why i think we're it's important for all of us in the industry to kind of be talking about it i'm glad the bbwaa is and you know i'm i'm glad that these conversations are happening and i think it's just cuz at the end of the day it is about the credibility of not just sports journalism but the media in general that we've got to do everything that we can to protect. There are always going to be, like I said earlier, there are always going to be fa bad faith actors, both in the media and outside the media who are doing, who are acting in bad faith. But as an industry, we don't need to give them any unforced, we don't need to commit any unforced errors. We don't need to give them any ammunition for, uh, for hurting our credibility. And I think that sports journalism and sports gambling, the, the potential is there for the incentives to line up to do something that damages credibility and that just hurts journalism as a whole. Now, if we all made much, much more money. That then, would solve everything, absolutely. <laughs> then we wouldn't have the incentive. So <laughs> the only way you can stop me and Meg from going down the dark road of uh, creating a sports journalism scandal is by supporting the podcast on <laughs> Patreon. You can keep us on the straight and Oh no! It's like ethical blackmail, such a thing as remotely possible. I mean, like I'm just in favor of much more draconian rules around all of this stuff. I realize that in in the industry writ large, my my view, even among the many many people who are concerned about this from an ethics perspective, might be sort of a, a you know like a left tail view. But I just I just don't think we should be allowed to bet on any of it beyond baseball or or in baseball um just because like why why introduce the ambiguity to your point like i i just don't think that there's much upside there yeah um, and I, but, I think if i can jump in Mike, because i think that's an interesting point you know i have friends who work in division one college athletics and have and you know they never do any of our uh ncaa men's and women's basketball pools and we never right. play even the ones that we don't play for money we just play to make fun of each other and the in the team names and and then the results they don't play because they can't it's against it's against the rules and i think when you get into i think that that one of the challenging things that that this brings up is what's gambling 
So yes, gambling right. on a game, betting on a game. Yes, betting on uh, who's going to have the most carries in the Bills Steelers game this week. You know, whatever, all these prop bets and everything else. But an NCAA. Not, now, if you say no gambling, you mean no NCAA tournament pool, even among your friends and family. You mean no uh, Super Bowl squares when you don't cover the NFL. That could be at you know school. You know. I, school teams in my community and school teams in, you know, they do those as fundraisers, you know, five bucks for a Super Bowl box. Um, you know, fantasy football. Does that, is that gambling? How is that gambling or fantasy baseball or fantasy whatever? And, and it's just this, it's this slippery slope that I don't know where I land on it. I'm probably less draconian than you, but I understand your, your, your point of view. But I, but I also think that my, my fear, I think one of my fears in all of this is that the discussion ends up becoming that, well, what's gambling? What can I do? Right. What can I do? And then, it, you know, it's just kind of, it, it gets so focused on that little aspect of it, which is, like, again, I guess one of the advantages of the no gambling at all, because it takes that off the table. But I, 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 like, bigger picture, I think, is much more important than the individual Oh, I bought you bought a square for my kids' raffle, so therefore your your right. reporting on high school sports is illegitimate. Like right. nobody really thinks that, but right. but again, it, it it gets muddy really, really. It can get muddy really quick. Sure. Yeah, and I you know I don't um, have an issue with like people being in a fantasy sports league with their friends and there being you know a five hundred dollar pool at the end of it. Especially since presumably those friends know that they're in a in a league with a reporter who might have information that they don't have. But right. my level of disinterest allows it allows me to be very ethical. <laughs> right? It's like quite easy for me because, and I've said this on the pod before. It's just not the way that I interact with sports or sort of enjoy it. Right. Um, even in a in context where I don't have a professional interest, like I've never felt compelled to um, bet on the NFL. And that's not the way that, you know, the Seahawks make me crazy. So, you know, I, I understand that I am operating from a perspective that might not be the majority one, but um, it's just uh, You're too, like too bored by it to be tempted by it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like a parlay. No, what? No, thank you. I, I'm already anxious about, you know, events yes. that occur in sequence. I don't need to be anxious with money on the line. You know, it's Look, just not I, necessary for me. I cannot imagine. I'm a lifelong Bills fan. I cannot imagine the bravery it takes to put your money on Josh Allen. Because <laughs> sure, you're yeah. riding play to play with that yeah. water buffalo. I, I, I love him to pieces, but I cannot imagine putting money based on what he's going to do. Yeah. Or the stress of, oh my gosh, I'm watching this game and there's money involved. And right. like that is that is a level of of bravery that I do not yeah. uh I do not aspire to, nor will I ever get to. Yes. Yeah, I feel like all you have to do is watch college kickers to be like, what are <laughs> what are any of you thinking? <laughs> exactly. We are all just so humble, he said humbly, that we don't think we would be any good at this. And so why would we <laughs> wager? Why would oh, no, we I think I could be money? very good at it to the extent that anyone is good at it, Ben. But the way that I would be good at but it no would be like, <laughs> right. But what I mean is like, it would require me violating, you know, ethical, uh, sure. professional ethics I hold quite dear. So. Yes. What, what, what helps me out is what helps me out is not only not the ethics, but I can unequivocally say that I am terrible at all of this fantasy football, <laughs> right. gambling, all of it. So that is yeah. just I will I will I will gladly not put throw my money away that I would do 
that I did endlessly in years when I did play fantasy football till I realized this was foolish of me. Yes, um, few people who are good at it, so we probably never hear from them. And right. also, the sports books ban them from betting as soon as they figure out that they're the ones who are good at it. But <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, if you, if you have no uh, ethical quandaries or compromises or gambling problems, then I support your right to have fun in a low stakes way. I guess <laughs> sure. I would prefer if maybe not quite so many people wanted to, but if they do want to, then I support their right to do that. And on the topic of, I think you can bet on anything, absolutely anything. I recently learned that you can bet on the final season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which I, I get Game of Thrones, but Curb you? Your Enthusiasm, I mean, <laughs> I, I am interested in Game of Thrones, and so I could imagine. Well, I imagine that would be who dies, who lives, Sure, that yeah, kind that, of was, thing. that was sure. a big thing, of course, right. But, but Curb is not really that kind of show. It's my kind of show. But yeah, you can bet like Larry comes out as LGBTQ plus at plus 2,500. What? Whatever that means. I think those are long odds. <laughs> yeah, that, sound, that sounds unlikely. Cheryl gets pregnant plus 600. I, I mean, Cheryl Hines is, is almost 60. That that seems like free money, you know? I'm almost tempted here. But but that wow. just kind of shows you the, the depths. I mean, that's maybe the last show I would think of as, like, got to get some action on Curb. Well, and to take it and to be that guy who takes it back to, uh, to journalism, now we take it away from sports journalism. And if you're a TV critic and you get an advanced screener of the series or you get advanced screeners of let's say three episodes or five episodes of that well now are you gonna now now you could conceivably head over there and and bet on what's happening in the season because Mm -hmm. again you have that advanced knowledge now is that ethical is that right I, I can't imagine a that would be the kicker, wouldn't it? The, the sports gambling scandal actually happens over betting on the final season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. There's something <laughs> yeah. so exquisite about that actually happening. Yeah, I mean, I'm watching screeners for True Detective and Masters of the Air right now. So if there's a, a market out there for, for those, I mean, yeah, I, I hope I can restrain myself. <laughs> so you can follow Brian on all the various platforms, including his Substack, which is sportsmediaguy.substack.com. He also has a Introduction to Sports Journalism Issues and Practice textbook coming out. <laughs> That's coming out. Um, that got that got rewritten a lot in the past few years. Um, but yeah, that is that should. Uh, I think we're expecting it to come out later this year. So looking yeah. forward to that. There's a, a little bit from me in there, apparently. Oh, yep. I don't know how many of our listeners are in the market for a sports journalism textbook. But if you are, Brian's your guy. And we hope that you will prove not to be prescient on this subject. So thank you very much, Brian. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. That will do it for today and for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. Hope you made it through arbitration deadline day without getting deked by a deal. Just a constant stream of signings and you're going, oh my gosh, so-and-so signed such and such. And then you realize, oh, it's just a one-year deal to avoid arbitration. The worst is when you come across a tweet or a headline that doesn't say that. You start seeing, Yankees sign Juan Soto. Oh my gosh, emergency pod. Oh, you mean just to avoid arbitration. Well, that's nice for Juan Soto, but a slight letdown for me. However, there was at least one notable signing and it did involve the Yankees. Marcus Stroman, Long Island native, which you should get used to hearing often, signed with the Yankees. 
if you've been paying any attention to my narrowing lead in the free agent contracts over underdraft, which we talked about last time, it has narrowed still further. MLB Trade Rumors predicted $44 million for Stroman. I took the over. He got the under. Two years, $37 million with a club option for a third year that can vest if he pitches enough innings in 2025. Thought he was going to do better than that. He opted out of one year, $21 million. Wonder if he thought his market would be more robust. But I guess the injuries late last year kind of torpedoed his earning power to some extent. Anyway, seemingly solid addition for the Yankees, who have been in the running for just about every remaining high-profile starting pitcher, and still are. It's quite a high-variant staff, as currently constituted. It's only a $7 million loss for me for over-under-draft purposes. But still, Meg creeps closer. Of course, this is all amusing because of the old war of words, Brian Cashman saying Stroman wasn't a difference maker back in 2019. Stroman firing back in 2020, saying, besides Cole, there's no current Yankees pitcher who will be anywhere in my league over the next five to seven years. Their pitching always folds in the end. That lineup and payroll should be winning World Series left and right, yet they're in a drought. Well, the lineup has been part of the problem lately, but he's not wrong that they needed help. In a sense, what better person to sign than the pitcher who pointed out you need pitching help? The jury's still out on his five to seven year prediction, but Marcus Stroman's 8.3 Fangraphs war from 2021 to 2023, higher than the total of any non-Cole Yankees pitcher, excluding Jordan Montgomery, who was a Yankee at that point. He's put up 10.2 Fangraphs war over those three seasons, but more than half of that wasn't with the Yankees. Generally, I think when there's beef like this, we probably blow it out of proportion. There's not really that much juicy drama off the field and on social media in baseball compared to some other sports. So hey, it's been a few years. Money talks. People put these things behind them. I did an article years and years and years ago where I looked at whether going to arbitration, where you have to sit there and listen to your own team badmouth you, basically, is associated with lower rates of resigning with that team down the road. And I couldn't find any evidence that it was. Sometimes you hear, oh, they're going to burn a bridge. They're going to drive this player away. Or why lowball him now? You're going to lose him later. And I'm sure that does happen sometimes. But I don't know how many players let that grudge be the basis of their decision years later. So Stroman in New York with extra scrutiny on his social media use. Seems like it could be a combustible situation, but it probably won't combust if he pitches well. Maybe Cashman can eat some crow and call him a difference maker now. He has with his actions, if not with his words. You can be difference makers for us with your actions by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. As have the following five listeners who have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. William Figgy, Zachary Jima, Mark Haber, Matt Wine, and Robert Goldstein. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group that Michael Mountain spoke so highly of, monthly bonus episodes, prioritized email answers, discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships, and so much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. I'll remind you one more time to check out Michael's survey posted on our show page and in your podcast app. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. If not, don't despair. You can still contact us via email, send your questions and comments to podcast at fancrafts.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you next week. Le stackless, le pifoy, so chouette, les avis pédantes et super une fête. Je pense que c'est effectively cool. Je pense que c'est effectively wild. Effectivement sauvage. 
effectivement sauvage.